But Father, you are good, and we're amazed by you. Every day is just, uh, we're astounded by your glory, by your goodness, by your magnificence. You are worthy of our praise and honor and glory. You are worthy of our whole lives. You have a plan for each of us and together as the church to advance the kingdom. And so we ask, come and equip us this morning. We have gathered here together today to hear from you. And so please, from your word, speak to us and equip us and prepare us and then send us out to do your work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14. It's the last book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand and someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. We're going through the book of Revelation verse by verse. And we're looking at this section here entitled The Two Witnesses. And what I want to say about this, we're going to look at these two amazing witnesses in this chapter here. But I want to say we are all called to be witnesses. And uh, a a great book by Danny Lehman, uh, Bringing Them Back Alive. This is on evangelism, okay? We sell this in the little book thing that we have over there. So if you're interested in evangelism and all, you know, get a copy of this. This is a great one. But this is what he said. He said, someone once said that compared to evangelism, everything else happening in the church is like rearranging the furniture while the house is on fire. Maybe an overstatement, maybe not, because if we're not reaching the lost, why don't we just go to heaven? Won't we be discipled better there anyway? Does that make sense? So God has a plan for us as a church to reach the lost, and that's what we're seeing these two witnesses do. Basic Christianity 101. Last week, we saw in chapter 10 how the Bible is our final authority giving us our marching orders, right? This week, as Christians, we're going to see that we are to be witnesses, fishers of souls. That's what he's called us to do. These two witnesses are our example, especially in the end times. And so let's look at our passage, Revelation 11. He says, then I was given a measuring reed like a rod with these words, go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count those who worship there, but exclude the courtyard outside the temple. Don't measure it because it is given to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. They have authority to close up the sky so that it does not rain during the days of their prophecy. They also have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague whenever they want. When they finish their testimony... The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war on them, conquer them, and kill them. Their dead bodies will lie in the main street of the great city, which figuratively is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. And some of the people's tribes, languages, and nations will view their bodies for three and a half days and not permit their bodies to be put into a tomb. 
Those who live on the earth will gloat over them and celebrate and send gifts to one another because these two prophets had tormented those who lived on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Take note, the third woe is coming soon. Here we see two guys mentioned in the book of Zechariah. We'll come back to that. Witnessing the power of the Spirit. They get killed. They rise again from the dead with the result of revival in Jerusalem. They are our example, not in every detail, okay? So don't be calling fire down on people, all right? But but let's see what we can learn from this passage from these two witnesses. First of all, verses 1 through 6, you know, who are the two witnesses? That's a big question, scholars. You know, if you read the commentaries, some say, well, it might be these, it might be that. Some people say it's Enoch and Elijah. That's a comeback. That must be it because those are the two guys in the Bible that never died. Okay, so that's that's one theory. Uh, Others say it's Moses and Elijah because of the types of miracles that they're performing seem like both Elijah's miracles as well as Moses' miracles. So that's a possibility. Others suggest it's just two unknown people that, uh, you know, we don't know who they are and because it doesn't say in the passage who they are. And so, you know, so there's the, the possibilities who, of who the two witnesses are. But what we do know is that they are the two olive trees of Zechariah 4. When it specifically says, these, verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, everybody then would have known exactly what he was talking about. He was talking about Zechariah chapter 4. So we've got to read that one, okay? So turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4 so we can learn a little bit more about who these guys might be. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And then you're at the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 4. We'll read the whole chapter just to get the context. The angel who was speaking with me then returned and roused me as one awakened out of sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I replied, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven spouts for each of the lamps. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and one, the other on its left. By the way, Zechariah is very similar to Revelation with the apocalyptic genre, so it's kind of like wild dreams and angels and stuff, you know. So how do we understand this? Well, the basic understanding comes clear, so let's just keep reading, okay? Don't you know what they are? Uh, uh, Did I read verse 4 yet? Verse 4. Then I asked the angel who was speaking with me, What are these, my Lord? Don't you know what they are, replied the angel who was speaking with me? I said, No, my Lord. So he answered me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of armies. By the way, Lord of armies, some, some translations say Lord of hosts. And you're like, what does that mean? What is a host, you know? It's Lord of armies. This is a, a far better translation, okay? Lord of the armies. Uh, what, are you, 
What are you, great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become a plain, and he will bring out the capstone accompanied by shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Zerubbabel's hands have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of the armies has sent me to you. For who despises the day of small things? These seven eyes of the Lord, which scan throughout the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. I asked him, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? There's our question, right? And I questioned him further, what are the two streams of the olive trees from which the golden oil is pouring through the two golden conduits? Then he inquired of me, don't you know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. These are the two anointed ones, he said, who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now, in this passage, Zerubbabel was the governor of Jerusalem, and he was helping with Joshua, the high priest, to build, rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. They're back in their homeland now after the exile, and they're rebuilding the temple. And so uh, an initial fulfillment of these two is probably Zerubbabel and Joshua. Some people actually think that maybe in Revelation 11 it's Joshua and Zerubbabel, okay? So that's another option there. But here initially it's these two who are rebuilding the temple, once again not by might nor by power but by my spirit, says the Lord. Uh, and and we, so we can learn from that, but apparently in the book of Revelation, we see that there's a, a more thorough fulfillment of this. And many times in the Bible, there's an initial fulfillment in the Old Testament of a prophecy, but a much more thorough fulfillment in the New Testament, either with Jesus or in the end times as we're seeing here in chapter 11. And so we see that initially, probably Zerubbabel and Joshua, but ultimately these two witnesses in chapter 11 who will speak. They are called the, the two olive trees. Now, when we look at this, what's going on, as I said, first of all, the rebuilding of the temple. And the, when the temple was built, they, the people, after they saw the temple, they were kind of almost uh, not all that thrilled because it was small. So the first temple, the Solomon temple, that was really, you know, just full of grandeur. And then the the second temple was pretty small. And so we see this, you know, don't worry. Who despises the day of small things? Uh, uh, And he's saying it, it, it it will become greater. We do know that Herod actually built it up quite a bit, made it far more uh, magnificent. But ultimately, when Jesus came into the temple the King of kings and Lord of lords, that's what made it the most spectacular, magnificent. But so, so some lessons we can learn from chapter 4 that we see in chapter 11 of these two witnesses of, in Revelation, but also for us, how can we be good witnesses of God? And first of all, that's that uh, point, by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of the armies. We we need to see this here. Okay, we need to understand because there's this idea out there that says you have tremendous potential. You just need to unlock that whatever it is inside of you and you can do anything you can imagine. That's the world. That's what the world tells us. It's not what the Bible tells us. 
The Bible tells us that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. That it is the power of the Spirit that d- does the work, not by strength or by might. Not by me. I got a little illustration here, and uh, I need my helpers to come up too. A little illustration here. Uh, see what this is? What is this? Fingernail file. Okay. I'm not sure how we're going to do this, but... Uh, Okay, just imagine me uh, chopping this wood. This is in my strength, okay, right? I'm going to chop the two-by-four with a fingernail file, okay? Wait a minute. It's not really working. If I get the side, ah, somebody else try this. No? Okay. You get the point. This is my strength, okay? Not by might nor by power. But instead, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So Phil is going to show us what the power of the Holy Spirit is like compared to the fingernail file, okay? Help us out here, Phil. You need to help? You know what these fingers are for? Oh, yeah. If you have little kids, you might want to, yeah. All right, do you get it? Do you get it? We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do anything of spiritual significance, especially this thing called witnessing. All right? Does that make sense? You know, we probably should have had that back here. (laughs) But I guess they cared more about you than me. Okay. (laughs) So, by the power of the Holy Spirit, okay, This is what we need. In order to be effective witnesses, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And also, the second lesson we can learn from Zechariah 4, don't despise the day of small things. This, uh, it ended up being really good. But sometimes God gradually works. He gradually does. And you might think, you know, my little word that I shared with so-and-so you know, I, I, they didn't even really receive it, you know, when I shared it. And they think, oh, well, you know, nothing. No, you don't understand what the Holy Spirit can do with those words. The only thing that will hinder that is if you don't do anything. Does that make sense? So as we share and we just sense as we're le- being led by God, that's what we want to, to learn here. Because in back to Revelation chapter 11, uh, they will witness with power. I mean, do you see how they're witnessing? They are calling down fire. They're stopping the weather. They're, that's not good. It's, you know, we should pray for rain. Rain is a good thing. I, yeah, okay. So they're, you know, this, this is amazing what they were doing. God's power uh, is evident here. They witness in power. And by the way, in the spirit of Elijah and Moses, that's a good possibility there. If it's not Elijah and Moses, it's very possible that it's two people in that same spirit because uh, we see the, like Elijah calling down fire, uh, stopping the rain, like Moses turning the water to blood. So that's a, you know, a good possibility. But in this witnessing with power, 
okay, as we walk through and see how they witnessed with power, what happened to people who tried to kill them, according to our passage? Yeah, they got killed, right? Okay, so they were protected. God's protection is evident. We've been going through the book of Revelation, and sometimes as we go through it, Revelation, we're thinking, oh, boy, I don't want to be during that time because, you know, it would be really hard and difficult. And trust me, it will be uh, the persecution. We're not promised any, you know, relief from persecution. Just ask the people today who are getting persecuted for their faith. Just saw in the paper uh, seven more beheadings. Just ask the people today who are being persecuted how difficult it is. But we do see God will protect us uh, and hold us on uh, as long as we have a part to play in this picture. Let me read something from Daniel Aiken. He is quoting Jim Elliott who was a missionary to the Aka Indians, and he was killed. He was a martyr as he was witnessing to them. But this is something he wrote before he was killed. He says, remember you are immortal until your work is done. But don't let the sands of time get into the eyes of your vision to reach those who still sit in darkness. They simply must hear. Don't let the sands of time get into your eyes that keeps you from seeing your part in this grand plan of God to reach the world. And remember, you are immortal until your work is done. And that's what he's saying, that, that God, if we are in the center of the will of God, we have absolutely no fear. We do not need, need to fear anything. They were in the center of God's will in the midst of this. And when the people tried to kill them, they couldn't. They were absolutely protected by God until their time was up. Now, we can, because we got that free will thing, we can walk away from God's plan. And when we do that, we walk away from his protection. So the smartest and safest place we can be is in the center of his will, whatever that entails. Uh, And we can waste our lives too, can't we? Why would we want to waste our lives? We have, you know, 80, 90, 100 years here on this planet and then eternity afterwards. Don't waste your life. So we see here God's protection. No fear but the fear of God. That's what we want to understand, and that's what these guys had. Now, God's power is evident as well. We see this. They're, they're stopping the rain for three and a half years. Uh, God's power is definitely evident. Power encounters are necessary uh, because it's, if we're going to reach the lost, they're spiritually dead before they come to Christ, Right? and they're blinded by Satan, do you really think you can convince them into the kingdom of God? It has to be the power of God. We must witness in the power of God, and that is absolutely uh, necessary and and essential. Now, some lessons we can learn from our passage, as well as, if you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Remember Elijah? He... uh, 
he was going against the prophets of Baal. And so he had this power encounter. He said, you guys call upon your God to consume your sacrifice, and I'm going to call upon my God. And then and, and Elijah won, didn't he? <laughs> His God brought down fire, consumed the whole sacrifice. Well, some lessons we can learn from that, okay? Power encounters necessary. First of all, we need to witness with God's leading, okay? And you're saying, well, where do you get that from this, Okay. Back with Elijah, I want you to turn to first, well, I didn't put the page number. First Kings 18, verse 36. Uh, in First Kings 18, that's chapter 18 is the passage on Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal. Okay, and we see this incredible power encounter where he just destroys the prophets. But there is a verse that's very, very essential for us to understand in what's going on in this. Let me read it, verse 36. At the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel and I am your servant and that at your word I have done all these things. That last phrase, at your word I have done all these things. See, Elijah didn't just come up with, hey, I I got all power. I think I'll just do this and that and everything else. He didn't do that at all. He simply listened to God. And as God led him, then the power came. Because we don't have all authority and power available to us all the time. That's a myth, okay? Nowhere in the Bible does it say that, by the way. When it says all authority has been given to me, Jesus said that about himself, not us. But as he leads us, he empowers us to accomplish the great tasks that he wants us to accomplish. If it's confronting the prophets of Baal or if it's talking to your neighbor. He's the one who leads us. So we want to be led by God. Witness with his leading. As the Holy Spirit leads you, you will sense it. You'll hear his words. uh, You'll have the right words to say and so forth. Okay. So witness with his leading. And be bold, right? Do do you sense that from these two witnesses? They were bold, weren't they? Uh, Be bold. Danny Lehman again. He gives this uh, excerpt from a letter from a communist student who's challenging the church, okay? Now listen to this letter that this communist wrote to a Christian. He says, the gospel is much more power, a much more powerful weapon for the renewal of society than is our Marxist philosophy. But all the same, it is we who will finally beat you. We communists do not play with words. We are realists. And seeing that we are determined to achieve our object, we know how to obtain the means. Of our salaries and wages, we keep only what is strictly necessary, and we give up our free time and part of our holidays. You, however, give only a little time and hardly any money for the spreading of the gospel of Christ. How can anybody believe in the supreme value of this gospel if you do not practice it, if you do not spread it, and if you sacrifice neither time nor money for it? We believe in our communist message, and we are ready to sacrifice everything, even our life, but you people are afraid even to soil your hands. That's kind of an indictment, isn't it? But guess what? This was written back in the 70s. Communism died, basically, hasn't it? There's no communism hardly at all anymore in the world. People call China communist. China is not communist anymore. They have a dictator. Communism isn't a dictatorship, by the way. You know that, right? 
communism means it's a it's an economic system. Okay, that's uh, so communism has basically died. China is is no longer communist in the economic system. But anyway, I'm I'm, I'm getting beyond the point there. The point is, communism died, and the the gospel is spreading. There are many people where this little guy who wrote this letter, he just didn't know about it. Lots of people. The, the gospel spreading all over the world right now because people are sharing their faith. All right? Revival is taking place throughout the world, maybe just not so much here in this country. And we're so myopic that we just look at ourselves all the time, you know, navel-gazing and all that kind of stuff, okay? Look bigger, okay? But hey, why don't we experience revival here, because you got a witness, right? Okay, so we see this. Be bold, though. A pansy Christian is an oxymoron, and you don't want to be a moron. Okay, Danny Lehman again. He says, and and by the way, this is one of the reasons why we don't share our faith. Okay, the key to handling rejection. We're afraid we're going to get rejected, right? Talk to somebody about Jesus, we're afraid we're going to get rejected. The key to handling rejection is making sure we are getting all the acceptance we need from the Father and not looking for it in the world. By its very nature, evangelism means we are uninvited people taking an uncomfortable message to a Christ-rejecting world where many will refuse it. That's the reality, isn't it? But we get our acceptance from Christ and from the body of Christ, then we're able to go out, share, and watch what God does because you can't save anybody anyway. But he uses means. He uses us. And so we are to be bold. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean you have to change your personality. A lot of you are afraid of that, right? You're all thinking, okay, I got to go out there and, you know, call down fire on people, (laughs) okay? You don't have to change your personality at all. God isn't asking you to be a different person. You, in your personality, we've talked about this before, there's six different evangelism styles found in the Bible. So you find out what, how has God made you? But the one thing you have to do is you have to share. And that's the point, okay? In your personality, in your way, as you're led by God, but we must all do our part. We all have a part to play in this grand scheme of advancing the kingdom of God and reaching the lost. And in that also, speak the truth in love. These two witnesses really cared about the end result. The the salvation of people who were going to hell. That's what they cared about. That's all they cared about. They had hearts of compassion for the lost. So we speak the truth in love. And by the way, power encounters, many people need truth encounters. Many people need, they they have these intellectual boulders that are keeping them from even listening to the gospel. And so we need to help help them through this. And so we need these truth encounters. As we share the truth, it's like putting a, pebble in someone's shoe, they just can't stop until they stop and take the shoe off and start thinking about it. So that's, people need truth encounters along with a heart of compassion for the person you're sharing with. Uh, I remember, still remember it very well. I was sitting in the car 
of Andy Jimenez. And, uh, and we were talking, and he, his wife was a believer, and he was an unbeliever. And he, uh, he actually, actually started liking Christian music because she introduced him to Christian music. He liked Christian music, but he, but he couldn't believe in Christianity because he had these questions that he had to ask and so forth. And so we're sitting in the van, and we, we said, I don't know how long we were there, but we shared, and he'd ask a question, and I'd talk, and this and that. And then after he saw that there were good answers to the questions that he had and saw that this, as, as Aaron said, this, this stuff really actually happened, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead on the third day, he prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior right in that van. He got baptized, and his life was changed. He began to serve the Lord, and, and like two years later, he became our worship leader. <laughs> see, see that's, that's, people need this, but what if nobody was there? God wants to use us all in this way. And you're thinking, but I'm not ready. I don't know how to do this. Okay, here's the deal. Okay, I was praying this week, and I felt like God gave me this, and so we don't even have it in the announcements or anything. August 5th. Saturday, for one hour, I'm going to do a training, and I'm going to give you some tools, okay, on how to ask, answer, ask and answer questions, get, getting people talking, okay, and specifically about Jesus Christ. So, so I want you to, you know, plan on coming. I'm going to give you some tools. I'm going to give you some, just very briefly, it's be an hour, you'll, you'll be equipped, and then sometime at the end of August, we're going to go out and do the stuff, all right? All right, Fair? You're thinking, no, I don't want to do that. You do. I know you do. I know you do. Okay, so put that down on your calendar. August 5th. We're going to be here Saturday, like 10 o'clock. I like to sleep in too. Okay. The two witnesses, back to two witnesses. They bring a message of impending judgment and an admonition to flee from the wrath to come. Did you notice that? There was no pussyfooting around with the gospel. They weren't saying, oh, Jesus loves you, and that's all you ever want to say. All right? Jesus loves you is half of the truth. He's a holy God and he is going to punish sin. That's the other half. And that's what we hear the whole message here. And we have to, if you only share half the message, people aren't going to get saved. Because they don't know what they're being saved from. So we have to share the truth. So here we see the whole truth being shared here. Now, that's verse 1 through 6. We'll go a little faster with the rest of it, all right? 7 through 10, we're introduced to this beast guy, okay? If you remember, 1 through 6, they're doing all this stuff. By the way, this question about the temple, there are different opinions on this temple. Is this an actual temple that the Jews are going to build in the end? That seems most likely. Some think that maybe it's the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is the church and other options there. But it seems like there's going to be a temple there and that because the Jewish people are going to end up getting saved as we see in the end of this chapter. But verses 7 through 9 or through 10, we have this beast introduced. Now, this is the first time he's talked about in the book of Revelation. We're going to cover him far more thoroughly in chapter 13. But who is the beast uh, who kills these witnesses? He's the Antichrist. This is who the beast is. We know this from chapter 13. He's the Antichrist spoken of in 1 John. He is the man of lawlessness spoken of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He's the little horn spoken of in Daniel 7 and the coming ruler of Daniel 9. 
So he is the Antichrist, and he will kill the two witnesses. Um, now, fascinating little possibility here, okay? This is, some, some of this stuff we can know for certain. Some of this stuff, as we've been going through the book of Revelation, we've been noting this is a possibility, right? Possibility here, which I find to be absolutely fascinating, is I've done a lot of study on what Muslims believe about the end times, okay? I have a book here written by Muslims, a collection of the prophecies throughout uh, since Muhammad's time and mainly from Muhammad, supposedly, uh, of what the end is going to be like. And it's really fascinating when you study this because they believe, this is the Muslims, okay? They believe that the Mahdi and Esau, Esau is their name for Jesus, the Esau is coming back, and the Mahdi will appear, and they together will rule for seven years in Jerusalem. They will overcome those who resist them by their knowledge, eloquence, and jihad, and they will oppose two figures, the Sufyani and the Dajjal. That's their names for them. These two figures who perform miracles in Jerusalem, even controlling the weather, and there will be a three years of bad taking place under these two, and then the Mahdi will kill them in Jerusalem. Does that sound like the exact opposite of what Revelation said? Could it be that the Antichrist and the false prophet are the Mahdi and Esau? We, we see something happening here. I find it fascinating that they believe the mirror opposite of what the book of Revelation teaches. Where did they get it? Probably from Satan. So here he will kill the two witnesses, and he will even declare a new holiday. If, I don't know if you noticed that, that they're actually throwing a party and sending gifts to each other. Woo-hoo, these guys are dead, just lying, rotting in the street there, you know, just... Uh, just that this, this is the new holiday. You could call it the dead witnesses holiday. Um, I want to say this. Theological liberalism has declared itself to be the moral majority party in our world. Those opposed to homosexuality, transgenderism, and abortion are now considered evil. The world has been turned upside down morally. These witnesses of truth that we're seeing in our passage will be labeled as evil and their death will be celebrated. On 9-11, there were parties all over the Islamic world rejoicing over the slaughter. I believe we're getting close to this holiday coming up. Now, maybe not. It might not be in our lifetime. We don't know. But it seems like the world is moving rapidly in that direction. But their witness will not be in vain. Our witness will not be in vain. Because the result in verses 11 through 14, we see very quickly here, Verse 11, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. 
Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. They went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. At that moment, a violent earthquake took place. A tenth of the city fell, and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Here we see the two witnesses are resurrected. So clearly resurrection bodies. That's what we're seeing here. The wicked are killed. It says very specifically at that moment, a violent earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and 7,000 people were killed. We must remember, and we've been seeing this throughout the book of Revelation, God is holy and he will judge sin. But he's also loving, which is why he's telling us ahead of time and why he's giving them so much time to be able to repent. And in fact, we see here a large group do repent at the end because God doesn't want to judge anyone. He wants them to repent and come back to him. But here we see the wicked killed, but finally revival comes to Israel. Jerusalem, that's where this takes place. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This phrase, gave glory to the God of heaven, is only used for believers in the Bible. So they, this is, we're seeing what uh, Zechariah 12, verse 10, and, and uh, many other passages, uh, Ezekiel 37 and others, that speak of how Israel in the end of time will finally put their trust in Christ. And I, once again, we're seeing this begin to take place more and more today. If you look at the history, the Jewish people for centuries were so obstinate as far as trusting in Christ. But all of a sudden, more and more people within the Jewish belief are putting their trust in Jesus as Messiah and Lord. I remember my, I've shared this before, my friend Leslie, I work with at Northwestern, uh, she's a Jewish believer. She became a believer two years ago, I believe it was. And last year, with the help of some of my writings in my book that I wrote, she shared with her mother who put her trust in Christ as Messiah, Jesus as Messiah. And, and just before she died, the Jewish people are coming in. It's starting to happen. And here we see God isn't finished with his people yet. Now, revival comes to Israel. I think, and we've been seeing this, revival's going to come all over the planet, and he's going to use his people to do this. But it takes witnessing. Back in the 70s, this country experienced the greatest revival it's ever experienced. More people came to Christ and and truly born again, entering into the kingdom of God in the 70s than any other revival this country's ever experienced. That includes the first and second great awakenings. Most people don't know that. The Jesus movement was amazing at what it had. And they were bold. They said one way. There's only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus. It's not all these different religions. It's not we all have the same God. We just don't know it. No, there's one way, and it's through Jesus, and that's it. And this is right after the 60s. Right? So you think, oh, that won't work today. Yes, it will. If you've got the power of the Holy Spirit behind you, but if you just, let me share what happened in the 80s, all right? Okay, in the 80s, we had this thing called the church growth movement, 
where churches began to say, we need to be really sensitive about not offending the lost. So we need to orchestrate our whole church around not offending the lost. And so they grew their churches, the church growth. By the way, those, some of those churches got really, really big, and you got these 20,000-member churches and so forth. But guess what happened to the church overall? It declined. We had this huge, in the 70s with the Jesus movement, huge spike in people coming to Christ and joining the church overall. And then when the church growth movement took over, it killed the church. That's a historical fact. So don't think that that's really what we need. What we need is bold witnesses witnessing in the power of the Holy Spirit. This idea of don't rock the boat uh, yeah, that brought plat- the plateauing of the growth of the church. Now, here's the big question. Is the result of revival worth the heartache of faithful witnessing? Remember the lessons of Zechariah 4. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And don't despise the day of small things. We do our part might start out small, but then it gets like a snowball, gets bigger and bigger, and we see the revival. Saturday, August 5th, 10 to 11, from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock, be here. Let's pray. Father, you know every single one of us are afraid. It really is difficult. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to act out in our own spirit or thinking. We need you, Holy Spirit, to lead us. And we need you to empower us. And we need your favor. That you'd help us, first of all, to have love for the people that we share with, that we really have a compassionate heart for their soul and care about them as individuals. But also, Lord, that we, you would give us the truth that we can share with them in such a way that they come to Christ. We want to see more and more people come to Jesus to radically get saved, baptized, and on fire for you start making a difference in their own lives as they seek to grow as a disciple. Lord, we see this pattern, we see this plan, and we all know we need your help. Only you can do it through us. So please unite us in this and help us find our part. What is our part, each of us? Help us.